You're listening to Campfire Conversations, brought to you by Three Rivers Land Trust, committed to conservation. Trimming. Brad's more... He's already, he's already doing more than you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we're going to start the episode. Brian's already doing more than I've ever done, um, is what Sam just said. Thanks. Yeah, well, that's uh, the truth. This is the first. So we've been promising for how long? Two months? Three months? I feel like it's a recurring thing that we talk like, got some really good guests coming up, and then like have, <laughs> have, have no guests. Yeah. Well, we've actually got new. This is the first. This is the, this is the inaugural episode with the new gear and an actual – we still haven't come up with a name for our – IT man, yeah. Uh, but Brian's like, yeah, just start talking and I'll, we'll, I'll edit it and trim it where it needs to be. That's not how I've done things in the past. No, Mm-mm. I'm like, no, we're gonna do it now, and I'm not cleaning up anything. Yeah. So this is what we're getting now. This is the product. This is the product you're getting. Uh, but let's uh, go around the room. So obviously I'm here. Sam's here. We've got a guest, which we'll introduce in a second. We've got. Over here, being a fly on the wall, we've got our IT man. He's kicked back, listening in, making sure that we're doing it right. So our guest this week, we're excited about knowing him. How long have I known you, Eli? I don't know. Ten years? Sure. Ten years? Known Eli for a while. Eli and I worked together in a former life um, for the state of North Carolina for the Wildlife Resources Commission and uh, have more recently worked together in in private capacity on multiple projects and Eli is also um, to introduce him properly Eli is a part-time employee of Three Rivers Land Trust I guess is the best way to put it part-time technicians manager with us um, and also a contractor Um, Eli owns and operates his own business now which we'll we'll get into that some too Uh, but Eli is a wildlife man a natural resources man and a lifelong steward of our natural resources and so what better way to kick off our new gear than to have an exciting guest that uh who's well spoken and uh well educated in the ways of wildlife wouldn't you say so sam that was nice yeah good intro you got anything else to add to that did i cover it all uh your introduction your introduction to eli is a little different than mine the first time i met eli we were on a burn together and I promptly ran over a fire rake with the, tr- with the pickup <laughs> truck. Is within one of your like, first burns with, with yeah, me? Yeah, within like five minutes of starting work. And I'm sure I've been trying to recover my reputation with Eli ever since. But uh, you've, you've still got ground to make up. I know. There. I'm sure I do. I'm sure I do. <laughs> that is true. I forgot that was your first your first interactions so been, with Eli. I've been working. I've been working hard. Was to, me? Was me saying? You know, an expletive and come on, Sam, we got to pay attention (laughs) on something like this. Well, I chalked it up to youthful zeal. Yeah, uh, maybe just trying to trying to impress you, maybe. Oh, and and so (laughs) this is not to do with that, but Brian's been like saying, "Don't be bumping the table or making noise." Look, this is still not a quality show. We're going. I'm going to go ahead and throw that out there. There's going to be some bumping and some knocking. Like if I bump on the table a little bit like that, I move around a little bit when I if you. When we get to the point where we're actually filming these episodes, you'll see 
I'm a hand talker. I use my hands a lot when I'm talking, and I can't help it. So there's going to be some background noise, so it's a free episode. Just, you know, I'm sorry. It's free. You're getting what you get. <laughs> yeah. You get what you pay for. Yeah. Um, yeah, my first interaction with Eli, since we're going that route, I knew of Eli pretty much right when I started with the Wildlife Commission. Eli had been on, you know, Eli was actually on his way to retirement when I was coming on. I mean, you probably had five years, something like that left. There there are those who say that from day one with state employment, you are on your way toward retirement. <laughs> I, I tend to try to avoid that context. Well, I, uh, I started and Eli... Not long after I started, it was we were replacing. We we're trying to make all game lands the game land staff. Sorry, hold on. Sorry, Brian. That was my computer going off. Let me fix that. Um, Eli, if you don't know, a uh, listener suggested a drinking game where every time there is a background noise that pops up, like my computer going off or the phone ringing, that you have to take a drink while you're listening to the episode. <laughs> so if you go home and listen to this and play it for your wife later. <laughs> You guys can uh, knock back a bottle of scotch. Uh, I, I have an idea it wouldn't take long. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Like I said, not a quality show. Uh, but Eli, we're trying to make all the game lands uniform. And Eli, being a, someone who has attention to detail that I admire, he had noticed that a lot of our gates, and if you've ever used public lands, you've seen this, Forest Service gates, game land gates, WMA gates, they're all kind of – tubular steel made out of you know schedule 40 pipe or whatever and you know have a pipe that's a support post that the gate hangs on and it swings open and they're open or closed depending on the road well that pipe in the past on game lands was always open at the top and if you've ever looked down in one of those pipes that's been standing for a while there's always you know dead frogs in them dead bird i mean stuff crawls up there and tries to nest in it or go in that hole but they can't get out it's a, it's a trap and eli pioneered us welding gate caps on the top of those things which i thought was ingenious and for some reason had just not just never thought of it. i was a little jealous that i hadn't thought of it but i've, I've got to say my recollection of that is not the same <laughs> oh really um I think I sent out a blurb one time uh, about filling the pipe below the lock opening. Yeah, maybe that was how it was. Uh, yeah. And because I had I had been opening a gate one time and could hear something in it, it turns out a, a bird had nested in there. Uh, and, uh, you know, birds can fly in there, but... Uh, a six-inch pipe is not wide enough for a bird to spread its wings and be able to fly back out. So he was just stuck. Um, I got a stick and was able to help him out. And I thought, you know, if we fill these things up with sand, which is cheap, mm-hmm. and, and sand doesn't settle much, then they can't get down in there as far. Yeah, now that you but now anyway, that you say it that way. However you want to remember it is fine now with that me. You said, but well, it seems like that is what you suggested, and we wound up going different in my area and welding a cap on there. Okay. Maybe that's what it was. But sure. either way, it was because of it was because of your observation that we did that. And so I always admired that. And then later on in my career, Eli retired, and I wound up 
talking to Eli as he was about preparing to retire about his position and uh, wound up putting in for his position and transferring into his former position once he vacated it. So kind of followed in Eli's footsteps for a little while before I wound up at Three Rivers going into the private sector. And here we are working together still yet. So I'm excited to, to have had you play that role in my career. Let's talk a little bit about some of, some of Eli's kind of work that he does now through his business and yeah. kind of the things that he does on the local landscape before we lead in. We actually prepared pretty pretty well for this one and came up with some questions, things that, that I didn't know and you didn't know um, that we can ask that I think will be useful to listeners, um, especially pertaining to invasives, uh, pertaining to management of your own property if you're a private landowner, no matter the size of the tract, and um, just hot tips from Eli from 30 years of 30 years of experience. That's the one thing we like on the show is hot tips, and I'm sure you're going to be full of them. So um, you have, I think I'm you full have, of something. <laughs> you have some bio for Eli. He sent us a little bio about him. So you want to go through and, and well, read I'm that gonna I'm gonna I think we go into his bio by asking questions and give Eli the floor. I'm good with that. That way, yeah. you can. You can leave out the parts you don't want in there and tell us the parts you want in there. Um, so first off, I'm interested in how did you get you – were, you were in the wildlife field at a time when we were still figuring out how to do things, especially public lands-wise. And we were reintroducing animals and trying to get populations started back up. How did you, how did you get into the wildlife field to begin with and some of the – things that you got to experience that guys you know coming on at my level we missed out on that like you know just anything you know exactly what I'm talking about um well it 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 was kind of an evolutionary process um I had a I had a very good advanced biology teacher in high school um he was he was not only knowledgeable, he was charismatic. He was the type of guy that you like to be around. Um, made, made the subject rather interesting. Um, my father grew up during the Great Depression and worked with what was then, what was originally called the Soil Erosion Service, later evolved into the Soil Conservation Service in Anson County, which is where Hugh Hammond Bennett the, the so-called father of soil conservation was from. Um, Daddy had a lot. He didn't. He didn't work at it that long. It was a. It wasn't exactly part of the WPA, but it was in that same make work, um, public works program or programming of the 30s. He had a lot of interest in tales, um, and one of my first summer jobs was with the YCC, the Youth Conservation Corps. Sam's nodding his head like he knows what I'm talking about. It's YCC was for folks um, I think 13 to 18, something like that. Uh, was in uh, was, was part of the um, natural resources 
landscape, if you want to put it that way, for several years. It was a government program styled not unlike the Civilian Conservation Corps of the 1930s and the New Deal. Um, people, were, people were paid a nominal wage for doing work on public lands. Um, I, I was raised in Wadesboro in Anson County and PD National Wildlife Refuge was just up the road and they hosted a camp. So we've got 30, 30 teenagers out there and you, yet, you know, we, we did hard, nasty work. Uh, bush axes, sling blades, shovels, um, and as nasty as it was, I liked it. Um, got to see a lot of neat things. Um, by the time that was, that would have been, I guess, my between my sophomore and junior year maybe of co of uh, high school maybe it was after that I can't remember but it was definitely during high school <coughs> excuse me and that you know all the things were kind of coming together with the you know with a with a teacher that I liked um, a w work that I enjoyed and uh, I knew what I wanted to major in when I went to college, and I majored in biology, and I stuck with it, and like to think that I have used that degree um, to to some effect, anyway. Yeah, that's is that's, that what you were that's, looking that's for? That's exactly <laughs> what I was looking for. Um, I don't is the Youth Conservation Corps still a thing, or is that evolved into AmeriCorps? <coughs> Kind of, yeah. I worked for AmeriCorps. Yeah, I knew which is why you were nodding your head. So that's mm -hmm. why I threw that out there. Yeah, and when I when I graduated, you know, it's most jobs. This one that I eventually got uh, being included in that list, they ask for that. You know, five years, three years of experience, um, pretty much across the board. So that was a good opportunity for me graduating from school. I had an environmental degree. Uh, and a business degree and knew kind of where I wanted to go as well. But that was kind of a good gateway for me. I mean, it's a low paying, real low paying job. Um, I was using the chainsaw and cutting down, doing fire mitigation stuff mostly there. Um, but for somebody who's young and is looking to get into the conservation field um, and wants that beginning job, just something to get you in the door and get you a little bit of experience, um, that's the route that I took um, along with an internship. My first job was un completely unpaid. Um, internship and then I took that job and I was getting paid you know like minimum wage and then after that it just kind of helped me build a resume so um, for somebody who's young and maybe interested in this field that's a good I mean they're all over the country I got to go out I lived in Denver so I mean you can go anywhere in the country and get some experience but I eventually wanted which ties into this episode I wanted to come back to this area I'm from Spartanburg South Carolina we're all local to a degree and there's something that I like about our area and, um, it helped me get back here and do the work that I wanted to do locally. So, so much like much like Eli's start there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so to interrupt that with this, we're all sitting, say roughly six foot apart, maybe more or less, uh, with, with this setup. And if you're trying to be six feet apart, no better way to be six foot apart than to listen to our previous episode and go camping 
and go visit your friends at Backcountry and Beyond. You like that, Sam? That That's pretty seg- good. Pretty decent segue. Um, yeah. Go visit your friends at Backcountry and Beyond. They will hook you up with a stove with some coffee for the road from black rifle coffee what's the name of that uh piece of equipment that you talked about the one that the has the usb port with the, the stove with the charger it's yeah. the biolite stove um burns natural fuels pretty neat i've been it. thinking about that ever since you told me about yeah, it. yeah i think i think i've been thinking about it a lot too i'd like to have one um but go check them out they, they'll uh they'll walk you through it they've also got these little inverter generator solar power deals that are that are pretty wild um they're selling them at cabela's now but why go to cabela's and buy it when you can buy it right here in salisbury at backcountry beyond and if you're not local you can order it online at backcountrybeyond.com nice back to our that was a, that, was my, good. that was my commercial voice that was good there. They, they're gonna have to pay extra for that so back to it i'm gonna I'm going to ask Sam, I'm going to ask a couple of my questions since they kind of go in order. And you do it how you want. That sounds good. Yours. So I didn't really write this out to you, Eli. So I'm going to, I'm going to frame it up different. So you, you got your degree. What were your next steps in order to take a position where you did and where did you start? you know working in public service with the wildlife resources commission to where you ended kind of walk us through that that ladder and and maybe some of the more interesting things you did and how you how you found out about because i know when i went to my start was a little different i knew i wanted to be from the time i was a little kid i knew i wanted to be a game warden right because that's what every that's what the only outside job there is at least that's what i knew of because that's the only face i ever saw of the agency of wildlife resources where i was from there wasn't public lands there wasn't um there wasn't a biologist next door for me to go see or talk to or interact with i didn't really find out about those things until i went to college yeah to be honest and so then i realized that there's a there's many more positions that you can have besides a game warden i kind of changed my strategy but that's what i wanted to do and so i went with those things in mind knowing that's what I wanted to do um, and still wanted to work for that agency so how did you what was your plan was you planning was your plan to be a wildlife biologist and work in public lands or how did that kind of happen for you uh, well that your point's well taken it's uh, you know if, when I was coming along and kind of had an idea of what I wanted to do the you know, people, oh, you want to work for the Forest Service. You want Everybody, to be a forester. Right. Um, and, and even after you explained to them what you did, they still didn't really understand. Um, I think when I was in college, working my way through a, a BS in biology, what I really wanted to do at the time, and, and bear in mind that your perspective changes over the years, at, at 19, 20 years old, I wanted to go to Alaska or Montana or Idaho or somewhere like that, you know, work where it was cold and got to work with big animals and see, you know, snow-capped mountains and all of that. Um, and the way to do that, because of my experience with PD National Wildlife Refuge, was, oh, well, you know, work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I was um, 
I, I did not come from an outdoorsy background. Uh, my dad didn't hunt, um, not to take anything away from him. He just he didn't care about it. He had not had that opportunity when he was younger. Um, so I didn't know a whole lot about the wildlife the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. Um, after I graduated in '81, back when the earth was still cooling and dinosaurs ruled. Um, I worked actually for a, a secondary uh, sort of a, an offshoot of the YCC called the YACC, Young Adult Conservation Corps, which fell by the wayside soon after, but um, was working with, with the staff there at PD Refuge. One of the guys, uh, one of the uh, technicians or, or part-time biologists there had also worked for the Wildlife Commission as a temp up at, uh, with the Burnsville crew. And he was telling me about that. And, you know, that, that was a, another potential job avenue rather than Fish and Wildlife Service because in 81, Ronald Reagan was elected and not to get partisan here, but he had a completely different perspective on um, government spending than his predecessor did. Sure, sure. Um, if y'all are way too young to remember, there was actually some serious talk about selling off Uwari National Forest uh, during that administration. So I, there, the prospects of federal employment were not good. Um, I did a number of things um, after that YACC stint, worked with a surveyor, which was a great experience. I was a, uh, an assistant livestock manager on a farm, which meant that I got to help with the, with the turkeys. <laughs> um, did, a, did a lot of different things, but in the back of my mind is, is keeping up with what was going on with the Wildlife Commission. Um, to make a long, boring story at least a little shorter, um, I, had, I interviewed for a, uh, a new technician series that were, that were research technicians for, a fur, for the fur bearer program. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get it. I didn't know the first thing about trapping, but figured I could learn. Uh, anyway, I didn't get that job. But the folks that I interviewed with apparently remembered me and called me in late 83 to see if I was interested in coming to Marion up in McDowell County to work as a temp for three months on the deer, pro uh, deer trapping Yeah, project. that's what I wanted to get into. Yeah. Um, that was kind of going to be kind of a leap for me. It was, you know, Marion's not quite 200 miles from Wadesboro, and I enjoyed what I was doing. I was working for the surveyor at that time. I had to make a decision whether to leave for three months with the possibility of not being able to find anything after that. Um, long and the short of it is I did go um, and, and enjoyed it and don't know what kind of an impression I made, but they apparently didn't at least blackball me 
Um, the, that was toward the tail end. That was probably about the end of the deer trapping program. Um, for anybody that's not familiar with that, it was, you know, we weren't catching them and killing them. We were catching them and relocating them to places uh, where deer had been extirpated over the previous hundred years. Yeah, believe it or not, going just just a little ways back in the history of North Carolina, deer weren't everywhere in the 80s. I mean, deer were not, you didn't hear a lot of vehicle collision incidents with deer because we we didn't have them and so that's what that's what he's talking about they were they were looking to increase the population and restore the native range of the white-tailed deer in north carolina so that's 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 what he was talking about there so that's that's absolutely correct um and we were trapping uh in the mountains the mountains even now just don't have a huge population like the piedmont and most of the coastal plain does just because as a former deer project leader put it 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 is a mast based economy they don't have the green browse the the high protein green browse that they do from farm fields Um, so much of that is in national forest up there it's all mast based is it Uh, kind of a feast or famine kind of landscape it's not really it just does not have the carrying capacity Mm -hmm. um you know the the deer are not any less healthy there just aren't as many of them sure and and never will be yeah so anyway we we were trapping uh primarily on biltmore estate yep and um you know it was it was just a complete shock to the system almost that you come in at three o'clock in the afternoon to load up your stuff and drive up to to Asheville and sit with a uh, it was an infrared spotting scope this was before the days of the starlight scopes and night vision gear this was just just barely better than the naked eye and watch a rocket net sight and um you know, there were there were a lot more misses than hits. We would sit until 11, 12 o'clock at night and probably, you know, a lot of times not see anything. Um, when you did catch, you usually had one person actually more or less in command of the site and the other one or two people were back up to help actually to, to subdue them and load them into the uh, transport rates so um it was uh it would it was not unlike a bad fire Mm -hmm. where you're maybe bored to death one minute and just not be too salty a language you'd be asses and elbows the very (laughs) next um and uh that was my introduction to uh, also to to wild turkey trapping uh, same thing with wild turkeys. They were they were taking them from places where they were plentiful, relocating them to places that had suitable range, but where the turkeys had been extirpated. Um, I I knew almost nothing about turkeys and still don't know a whole lot. But um, it was all very interesting. Got to see some really interesting stuff. Some 
old school technology and um, just you know some plain old basic hard work so when you look at the so if you're um, the majority of to preface this Eli a lot of our listeners are sportsmen in North Carolina I think and you'll be interested to to know and think about a time where there was basically no opportunity and if there was it was very minute for harvesting big game species and turkeys included in that in North Carolina's definition of big game so whitetail deer and wild turkey you can pretty much go to any county in the state now and have a reasonable chance at at seeing these species and it was because of work that these guys were doing that you can do that because prior to that it's like Eli just mentioned they were they were extirpated so I find that fascinating and it's just it's it's neat to think about that that's that's wildlife management on a scale that we we don't get to do anymore because they did such a good job of doing it then um, and it's a success story so with that how did how did that translate into your full-time career well uh, after that stint at uh, Marion wrapped up um, and I I was interested in continuing to pursue it uh, and you know and the longer you're with it the more things you find out the, um, the folks up there said well there are other temporary jobs especially in the summertime at other depots and this was back in the day when all a lot of the temp positions were three months um, so I was put in touch with the region supervisor in the Piedmont who put me in touch with a crew leader um, in Montgomery County that was co-located with Uwari National Forest and Montgomery County was just one county above my home county of Anson so um, you know it was nice to be back home and I talked to him about it and, and was hired during the time that I was there and, and let me back up that that crew was relatively new and by that I mean just a, a few fewer than probably six years old um, the game lands program didn't start up until probably the early 70s right and I was going to mention that so I'm glad you did um, so some of these crews were were fairly recent innovations that crew had had been staffed originally I think at two technicians and one temp and at the time at the time at that time temps were basically year-round um, by the time I was entering the job market those were considerably shorter those those essentially full-time jobs were, had been phased out so um, and also one of the technicians at Uwari had been that position had been transferred somewhere else while I was there they decided to transfer a position back to Uwari and they needed it was, was a fellow fellow retiring on another game land uh, with another crew and they were going to move his position and I interviewed for it um, 
you know, I was already there, kind of knew what was going on. Well, I didn't get, I didn't make that cut um, and was rather put out about that. But eventually the fellow that was selected decided he didn't want it after all and they offered it to me and I, I of course, held out for way more money. And <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I got that job and stayed there. Um, I was, uh, there were just two of us, two of us full time. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, it was, it was close to where I was raised. I knew the area, kind of knew what was going on, knew the drill, knew the personnel. Um, and, uh, hung on long enough for, for my coworker to retire. He was the crew leader team leader, whatever they call it. They changed now. it a couple, three, five times. And uh, I interviewed for and got that position and um, retired at, at that level. And don't leave out, you were the interim management biologist for well, I, for four years or I, whatever. Well, yeah, there was a short period of time there. I picked up a little bit of the slack, but it was mostly just to just to get the ball rolling on the management plan. I I did not complete that job, but I, I think I did had done enough of the basic research for the when the uh, management biologist came back on board, he was able to at least pick up some of the pieces. So I got a question to fill ahead. in there. Yeah. Um, talking too much. So you're talking about that full time position moving into that role. What are just the basic synopsis of the duties involved with that position being a land manager? And then I guess the follow-up question once you, once you kind of go through that is I was interested in what you were talking about early in your career about taking these large game species and moving them across the state and um, building those populations back up. So including that, that being one of the elements, what are some of the significant ways in a long career of doing what you've been doing that you've seen land management evolved, uh, evolve and the work that you've done kind of change the landscape and and just trends that you've seen over your career in terms of land management, how it's done, things you've seen on the landscape that have, that have evolved? I, I've, I gave that some thought when you all sent me the questions, and I guess all other things being equal, probably technology, uh, particularly digital technology has modified the way we could do a lot of things. When I first started in the 80s, aerial photographs were on paper and they were not cheap. Uh, depots, at least the one we were at, because we were always on a shoestring budget, um, we didn't have aerial photos of, of where we are. And nowadays, almost every county uh, has a GIS department that has relatively recent aerial photos. And you can tell a lot from an aerial photo. Um, GPS technology now, uh, where you can, you know, you can digitize roads, 
you can digitize streams, you can digitize boundaries of, of wildlife openings, timber sales, all kind of stuff like that. Those may not really have changed the way we do things, but they made a lot of the things that we did easier to quantify, I guess. Uh, you know, there's still, as to use the term, it's still boots on the ground. You can't get a drone to nail a boundary sign to a tree. Mm. But you can get a drone to drop ping pong balls with potassium chlorate and ethylene glycol and start a fire. Uh, those, you know, those things have come along. They have evolved really more since I left than before. Now, personally, I don't think there's any substitute for having a set of Mark I eyeballs on a fire line. I think there is still always going to be a place for that guy with the fire rake and the yellow shirt out there doing the job. Um, even GPS technology, though, for planting fields, now where you've got um, the black boxes that, that can be put on tractors and keep you exactly in your row, uh, you can you can adjust lime and fertilizer applications. You can adjust uh, your seeding. There are just there's a myriad of of things that you can do that will make your life easier and in some cases more economical. Um, the hard work's still there. It's still I imagine having been out of that game, the public land game for several years I imagine there's still a lot of fun to be had doing those things uh, that that still require just plain old hard work but I think I think technology probably has had more impact more in many ways more positive impact than negative when it comes to this is for both of y'all because y'all held the same position um, you know, you, it's easy to understand what a game, well, like you talked about, you people may be new to the field or new to uh, the WRC. You know, it's easy to understand what a game warden does. It's enforcement. When it comes to a technician, um, the job responsibilities and the duties that y'all held were wider. There's kind of a lot that fell under that umbrella, and I'm just kind of writing down a handful, but y'all fill in if there's things that are left off, and maybe people that don't know this will be a you know, this is kind of ties into some of the things that we do here at the Land Trust as sure, well. Absolutely. Um, so, fire is one of your job responsibilities. Controlled burns, managing the landscape in that way. Invasive removal or removal of natives that are undesirable. Um, boundary posting, managing boundary, and then plantings for wildlife uh, and putting native or beneficial species on the landscape for the species that we're trying to promote and and grow um are there other things other duties that maybe people don't don't know about or is that pretty much i mean obviously technology and equipment management as well and being able to run all being these, a mechanic being a mechanic yeah being a plumber being a carpenter i mean eli basically built his own depot <laughs> no, I won't take credit and and on a on a shoestring budget as well i mean that's a lot of you know, i mean you have to be an expert in a lot of different fields 
to hold that position. And public relations as a mm, – so, and Eli can talk about this more than me, but where the depot that we both worked at was located, it was real easy for folks. It was kind of like the entryway to URA National Forest coming from the western side of the state. So it was real easy for folks to swing in there and, you know, talk about what's going on. Where's it – where can I go hunt? or. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know where are the deer at? Is, you know, kind of mm -hmm. a basic question, but that was a huge part of it was just public relations and being like the front desk guy. Um, I would I would also put in there um, wildlife surveys. It was perfect. we didn't spend a lot of time doing it, but I think it was I think it was an important thing. Um, everything from CWD sample collection to the annual red cockaded woodpecker survey at Sand Hills. It, uh, it's probably a little bit different now since there was a reorganization and since I'm not in the organization any longer, I think that was one of the worst things to happen to the agency. Um, but having said that, the what had been the game lands crews were a major source of manpower for those surveys. The um, the habitat conservation folks are, are what we used to call a non-game, non or some 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 of the hook and bullet guys called them non-game <laughs> yeah. folks that needed people to conduct widespread surveys relied on the game lands crews for that personnel power. I mean, you don't survey 15,000 acres of Sandhills game land with two people. Yeah. We, w we would pull in, for many years, pull down the entire Piedmont. That was three wildlife districts from the South Carolina line all the way up to Virginia and from Cabarrus County to Northampton. Northampton. I mean, it was people came long distances to participate in that and we got you know we would cover the overwhelming majority of that acreage like put walk, walk yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah just mm -hmm. purely walk it uh, a lot of the preliminary work was done that way now uh, the management biologist pretty much knows where all those clusters are because of work we had done and because of time he spent out there and and it is not as intensive, but there are other things. I mean, there's there, there are things that you could get involved with, like night jar surveys. Um, I don't know if you, Greg, Greg. Did yep, those. we still did them. Uh, I still did them when I was there. So there's there's lots of. Um, <laughs> it's okay. I had a minor interruption. Continue. There there are lots of. Uh, surveys that again don't take a whole lot of time but they are important in the grand scheme of things um, and, and I would also toss in uh, that that bane of every wildlife manager administration right there is a certain amount of desk time that you've got to put in and the higher you go up the ladder the more of it you have and the longer the more time you spend in the office because if it is not done on paper it's not done did it really happen yeah that's right <laughs> it didn't really happen you can you can spend all the time in the world posting boundary or burning uh, burning habitat 
but if you don't if you don't record it it doesn't happen and you don't you know the Pittman Robertson money that's used for the um, matching funds for all that stuff that won't the only way to that get it won't is to get disbursed if right. you don't account for what you've done and that came from and that came from the game lands crew and, and those guys recording that and also it's like you I'm glad you brought up wildlife surveys basically all the game lands the rules that are put in place for what can be harvested how many of that granted the commissioners decide ultimately what rules they're going to adopt but those suggestions are taken by the boots on the ground which is generally technicians and game land staff who are have that familiarity with the area um, without you know uh, I would say an example would be delegation of archery only zones. When, when the idea of restricting a public area to a certain type of weapon only comes up, the first people that are asked about it are the boots on the ground because, hey, is there a, is there a danger by using a firearm here? Is there something going on? So. So those guys are the are the knowledge. I mean, it's their job to know the area. So so yeah, there's a being a technician meant meant everything. And without and I don't think that technicians and management staff get near the credit they deserve. They rarely get their picture in the magazine. They're rarely recognized for any work. There's no like award really for. There's no NWTF Technician of the Year award. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's the dirty job, but it's it's the job that counts. Would Would you agree with that, Eli? Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's. I think it's. I think it's a. Uh, it's common to everybody. We don't. We don't get into this line of work for the money. Uh, we get into it because we enjoy it. Um. And uh, you know, the job does pay the bills at least most months. But you know, we we get to do or got to do a lot of neat things. Mm-hmm. How often do you get paid to work with low yield explosives? Exactly. <laughs> um, how often do you get to? run a hundred and fifty thousand dollar piece of equipment and not have to pay for it if it it breaks when it breaks (laughs) yeah that's true so you know there it's not that anybody was malicious in trying to um trying to cost the commission money but you know those opportunities you just don't you don't get the chance to trap wood ducks or push fire lines or or set fires in the woods and get paid for it very often exactly. those those opportunities are few and far between and I don't think I have ever met anybody in the business that did not even though we were having fun doing it didn't take the job seriously it was it was a job it was a duty and if we could have fun doing it that was absolutely fantastic <laughs> <laughs> That kind of leads me into another question, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it, man. Um, So you worked with the commission. You retired, but you didn't really retire. 
from the commission. You went on. Like and you started working harder. Started working harder <laughs> than you ever did before. Working for your yourself, uh, Eli Beverly and Associates. Uh, EBNA, as we've come to call it. Yeah, and it's something that I've had the fortune of working with Eli before. I know Cody's worked a lot with Eli, um, being contracted for jobs and um, kind of go a little bit into your. I, I guess where I'm interested in going next, if if it's okay with y'all is some of the duties that you do uh, kind of where I want to go is you work for contracted by the government you're contracted by state government you're contracted by private individuals um, for a myriad of land management practices so what are kind of the big practices that you're doing that you what if you had to have the Mount Rushmore of jobs that you get contracted for what are the four jobs that you all that just constantly you're getting hit with and why well as you've as you said uh, a lot of my work comes from um, NGOs like land trusts not just this one and um, local or state government some for the federal government I'm I'm kind of a uh, local resource for the U.S. Forest Service on uh, Uwari for some jobs, especially invasive jobs. Rather than branch out too much and have a lot of money tied up in equipment uh, that I don't that that costs money to maintain and has to have a place to store, my business generally boils down to herbicide application. Uh, generally for forestry practices and prescribed burning. Those are really the two things that I specialize in. Um, and a lot of uh, probably the lion's share of the herbicide application is invasive species or crop tree release, both of which are labor intensive. Um, you know, I, if I did this solely as a living, if this was my sole source of income, I would not have not only have to charge a whole lot more than I charge now, um, but I would, you know, I would probably have to do some things differently, including having a website and trying to get my name out there. As it is, um, there are there are some foresters who refer work to me uh, that I know and uh, that I work with over the years. There are state agency personnel and state entities that I have worked with. So um, I'm probably able to do some things cheaper than other contractors that are that are in it in a larger way and need to make you know need to turn money over. This is a supplement for me. Um, but it's not something I like to lose money on. I, yeah. I may not, I might, may not make a killing on it, but unless I don't. you work with me, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, there's in in, in many respects the uh, pricing structure is still evolving. But um, having said all that, I mean, there a lot of these jobs are just very labor intensive. It is just plain hot, sweaty work that's done in the worst possible time of the year. <laughs> which is right now, late summer. Um, 
and I'm willing to do those jobs. And the people that I contract to help me with them are willing to do those jobs. I probably, I'm sure that, that oftentimes the folks that work with me don't feel like they're getting paid enough, but I think my... I would disagree with that. I statement. think my, uh, you know, I, I feel like if I'm going to need somebody who can identify oriental bittersweet uh, as opposed to honeysuckle, as opposed to cross vine, I need to pay them for that. Um, you know, for for just killing non-crop trees for a, uh, an FLLP pro, uh, project or a, uh, an equip job, certainly it's less skilled, but uh, you know, you still have to have an, a basic understanding. So um, that's a long way of saying I don't get into food plot preparation. I don't get into doing smaller scale stuff that requires a whole lot of work. Um, I, my bread and butter, I guess if I had to categorize it as that, I had to break this down for my liability insurance application this year as to how much of how much I made off of, you know, different components. And herbicide application is the one that turns over the most money. Um, but prescribed burning is prescribed burning is more fun, uh, and also more Sometimes. scary. <laughs> also more scary uh, at, by turns. But um, herbicide application is a more constant source of uh, revenue, and um, seems to be what people gravitate toward when when they need me for something. When it comes to herbicide application, um, what are the species that uh, maybe somebody new to this uh, may not understand, but are we talking strictly invasives? Are we talking some native species? I know, you know, one thing we talk a lot about is those early successional hardwood trees, native hardwood trees, sweet gums and uh, maples and things coming up. Are you doing a lot of those jobs? Are you getting rid of invasives a lot? Name What are some of the, the key species that you clue in on? When you're going into a site, I guess it depends on the management what they plan, what they want to do on that property. But what jobs are you are you strictly getting getting contracted for? Um, it it varies a little bit from year to year. Uh, I've, I'm doing sort of a long term project for the North Carolina Zoo on one of their conservation properties um, on invasive. They have a plethora of invasive species on this site. It's an old, it's a home site that's um, one of the most interior natural longleaf stands. Uh, it's in the northern part of Montgomery County and the, the elderly lady who lived there, it has been said that she would plant anything that somebody would give her mm. and make it grow. Mm-hmm. And she did so well that um, oriental bittersweet, which is a nasty, nasty invasive that they have a lot of problems with up in the mountains. Um, I'm, right now I'm in the process of treating about 25 acres of that 90 acre tract for oriental bittersweet. Mm. Um, 
I've done automotive uh, work for uh, Mecklenburg County Parks and uh, U.S. Forest Service. Um, I mentioned before we started that I, I'm doing some kudzu work for another uh, land trust, uh, Catawba uh, Lands Conservancy. Um, you know, there's there's just a host of in the, of invasives. It is there's nothing like job security when when you are treating invasives because it's a recurring uh, recurring job in most places. And people people need to understand that. Uh, we can get into that later. But um, some of the other projects are. Uh, like uh, a couple of them that I'm doing for Three Rivers at the moment uh, are crop tree release. They are either for um, creating canopy gaps in an otherwise predominantly hardwood forest um, for that, that are funded by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service through the Audubon Society to create diversity in those large contiguous canopies. Uh, where we are, we are killing essentially every tree um, in these designated gaps, um, leaving some, leaving about maybe 20 trees an acre. Mm, wow, mm -hmm. which sounds really sparse, but if you do the math on it, that's uh, what is that about? I don't know about a 45 by 45 grid. That's there's one tree, and and you look at the canopy on those, and it damn near takes up that entire piece. So uh, when you you know that sounds like it's really thin, and it is really thin. But on the other hand, if you got a bunch of small stems in there, it takes a long time. Uh, another job that I'm doing is um, we're opening up some drains. Um, in the sand hills, I'm not really sure whether the stated purpose is to open them up so fire can go through it, or just um, increase more increase the diversity. Either one of those is applicable, I assume. But again, lots of small stems translates into lots of work. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing a, basically the same thing, probably leaving probably leaving it a little more dense than that but um, you know they're native they're mostly native species lots of holly lots of sweet gum some pine um, we're killing some privet in there but um, you know it just depends and that's that's individual tree work you know there are probably other ways to do it but if you want if you have specific trees you want to say there's really no way to no way around getting in there with a hatchet and a squirrel. There's no broad spectrum thing you can do that'll treat one thing and not another. That's yeah. that's very true most of the time. And Eli's filling a a very niche contractor spot here because a lot of these programs he's mentioned are all government related incentive programs for habitat, for natural resources benefit, the canopy gaps or to create sunlight penetration and have a more diverse understory um, and, and some of those other programs he listed the thing is there's all those programs are available to anyone that has land but just because those programs are available doesn't mean 
that they can do them because they don't have the expertise either to identify the species and do them themselves. They don't hold a pesticide license. They don't have familiarity with the chemicals they need or know how to apply them. And so lots of folks are at a disadvantage and not able to take advantage of these programs because there's no one to do the work. So that's where EBNA comes in. Even for Three Rivers, we span across 15 counties and it's Sam and I can't go treat every site and make sure they're all being taken care of and stewarded in a way that we would like to see them treated. And so that's where Eli comes in. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess whichever way you want to look at it, from one perspective, it's great for Eli because there's little competition in this realm and the competition that is there. It's like he said, it's extremely expensive to do this kind of work. Um, but on the other hand, for folks trying to get this kind of work done, there, I mean, there's a backlog of, of stuff because it's it's everywhere. Invasives are everywhere and everybody is trying to get this kind of thing done and these other management activities, it's something that, that there's a demand but not that much supply. Yeah, and anybody who's gone in and cut a sweet gum before without the ability to use chemical has seen what happens. I mean, you go in and cut it and then it stump sprout happens and you've got six sweet gums coming up so um that's why i mean you're you're big obviously you're like you said the majority of your work is is chemical based um can you talk about the pros and cons yeah, of chemical I, I wanted to ask that in a, in a way go ahead please i wanted to so i refer to eli a lot of times on on chemical applications if it's something i'm i'm not familiar with or just because he's got more expertise than i do i'll get his take on something uh, a lot of times, a lot of times, herbicide and pesticide gets a bad rap, uh, especially from from folks that are are partial to wildlife and plant life, flora and fauna. A lot of times, we very much frown upon chemical applications. Uh, give us a take on it, the pros and cons, and 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 how. You, how you think it is utilized as a tool in a in a beneficial way because obviously everyone sitting in this room feels that it's a beneficial tool because we all use chemical uh and so maybe you can speak to that better than i can and i'd like to add one thing which is the precision of your chemical use when you're going about talking about on an individual tree basis your work that you do um talk about cutting a tree and then the the minute scalpel like use of chemical that you use i mean it's not it's not a broad scale spray over the top um so talk about that as well um probably a lot of the indignation about using pesticides in on the landscape stems from lack of familiarity and understanding and that's, you know, I, I can certainly see why folks are, are dubious of it. Uh, there's a lot of conflicting information out there. Um, pesticides have been implicated, and justifiably so, I think, in a lot of things. Everybody... Certainly everybody that's my age that's in the natural resources world um, knows the impacts that DDT 
had. You know, DDT is still used in some third world countries, but hasn't been used in the U.S. since the 1970s because of the issues that, that um, came up from calcium deposition in, in bird egg shells, especially uh, raptor species. So we could paint with a broad brush and say, oh, all those people are bunny huggers and, and don't, you know, they just don't want us to do any management. I don't think that's, I don't think that's accurate. I, for example, I am not in favor of using genetically modified um, crops on public lands. I don't think the track record is there. Um, wildlife agencies are typically not in the, per, the um, position of having to make money off the commodity that they grow. They are there to provide opportunity and wildlife habitat. So I think that, yeah, there's, I think there's overuse of, of pesticides in a lot of applications. You know, we have seen problems, well-documented problems with um, dicamba uh, drift. Dicambas are just a, a loose cannon sometimes. Uh, it's in 2,4-D. Yeah. There you go. Um, so, there, you know, it's an evolving process in many ways. But on the other side of the coin, where would we be without judicious and correct application of herbicides? Um they have their place. Like many other tools, they have their place and their application. I used to, I used to think that all aerial spraying was bad. Oh, God, those people are just out there dumping tons of chemical on the ground. And as I have gotten more experience and more exposure to it, I know that that's not the case. Certainly there are applicators who are better than others. But by and large, People that are in that business take care because, number one, if you misapply, if you use too much, it costs money. Uh, if you don't use enough, it costs somebody some money. If you misapply, if you are in violation of the label, it costs you money because you can be fined and or lose your license. So there is a need, and I think by and large, again, um, most applicators are cognizant of the hazards of, of misuse. Um, herbicide selection is important. Yep. There are broad-spectrum non-selective herbicides, then there are selective herbicides, and which one you choose to use depends on the situation. Um, you know, we're, I deal, again, mostly with herbicides. I've done a, a tiny amount of work for one, one person with some fire ant bait application. And it's only because I went to kindergarten with him. I've known him my whole life. Um, I don't do that for the general population. But I researched that. You know, you're putting out an insecticide. 
and where fire bait fire ant bait differs is it is it is quite selective because fire ants are one of very few species of ants that key in on fats mm -hmm. and those fire ant baits have a fat soluble um, slow acting insecticide in them and there's there's remarkably little damage to the rest of the ant community, if you will. Native species of ants generally don't key in on it. Again, that comes from reading the label and doing the research. You gotta know, you gotta know your enemy. Um, some herbicides are safer than others. One of, the one, one of my favorites uh, carries a signal word of danger, which is next to the highest. It's, it's strong. It's a strong signal word. And, uh, and it's for um, permanent eye damage in concentrate. So if you, I mean, you have to wear eye protection. But it's also one of the safest ones for the environment. It is, it's not residual. It uh, has a half-life of anywhere from 40 to 160 days, and it's, it's gone. It's undetectable. Um, but again, you know, we don't, we don't put it out there unless it's needed. Right. And I monitor how the, these, these chemical labels have maximum use amounts, and I keep up, as I'm sure you all do, with how much you put on that acre per year because you know it's it's insurance for you and it lets you know what you're doing it lets you know where you stand if you need to do that application again is is any yep. of any of that that long rambling no, that's application exactly, that's answer exactly what, you, what we were looking for um i think that uh what am i looking for keystone words there are knowing your enemy and the type of application and the carrying capacity of that application so how much a landscape can tolerate and the thing that you probably noticed is is how well Eli knew how those chemicals work and the mode of action and how long they're residual on the landscape I mean folks that are licensed pesticide applicators who do this for a living have a different understanding of pesticides than your average homeowner that goes to Lowe's and buys a jug of Roundup. And puts it out barefooted wearing shorts. Wearing shorts and doesn't mix anything. It's pre-mixed. Doesn't read the label. I mean, how many times have you seen, you've drove down the road and seen somebody spraying their yard with something? Mm -hmm. That guy didn't read the label. You know he didn't. Apologize for the background noise. We are in town today. There's a drink. Um, but anyways, you, yeah. Sam, I'm sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. Sam, you'd mentioned single stem treatment. Mm -hmm. um, I think what you were getting at were, was about different types of applications. Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, the, broad, the, the aerial application we were talking about um, is, is, you know, that's usually a large scale. They won't bring a helicopter in for you know, for a two-acre job usually, unless they've got a bigger job close by. There are uh, ground-mounted forestry-type applications that are done with a skitter and a boomless sprayer that, that are fairly selective. If you, if you think about 
selectivity. The broader the spectrum, generally the cheaper per acre. Um, as you move toward more and more selectivity, like even to a single species, you're going to pay more because you can't just go out there with a piece of machinery and do 10 acres in a half an hour. That 10 acres on foot with a backpack sprayer may take 25 hours. So, um, like I was saying, you, you, if you're moving down in selectivity from an aerial spray to a broadcast spray with something with a with a vehicle-mounted sprayer, then you're coming to backpack application. And, and you know a utility vehicle with a spot sprayer on it is somewhere in between mm -hmm. um, and then finally you move to, to a hack and squirt application or a sink or a cut stump treatment that is the the most selective but also the most expensive um, it takes a long time to to work over an acre doing you know with a chainsaw or a hatchet it's, it's labor intensive and if you want to see one drive down low water bridge road and look to the east and you can you can see one all day long there because we eli and sam and i have been working on one for a while so um you know there are there are different ways other than the uh the boom sprayer on a helicopter that's covering 40 acres at a whack so you know that's that's the other that's another component of the whole um, pesticide overuse issue you know it's there are different ways to do it that are dependent on what you're trying to do to backtrack here if i can quick question go for it um we had talked earlier about changes you've seen in land management and you'd mentioned technology. Have you noticed a um, a change in invasive species and the proclivity or the range of some over your career? That's a good question. I'll have to admit that up until probably 10 or 15 years ago, I didn't pay attention to invasives. I knew they were out there. I didn't know how to identify a bunch of them. I didn't know how widespread they were. Um, so I'm probably not, I probably don't have a good answer for that. Uh, now, you know, once once you know what they look like, you see them that's, everywhere. Mm, that's, that's a good point. I think that that's the main thing. Once you, <coughs> if you've spent a day treating invasives, when you're driving down the highway, they just pop out at you every time. Sam's laughing because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, ever my. since, ever since you and I worked on Automolive together, I can't it's stop everywhere. I can't stop seeing Automolive. Well, my my wife, um, after we talked about Privet, and I, she she actually helped me. I've got a, you know, I'm I'm sort of the poster child for Privet. I've got a, <laughs> a jungle of it in my backyard. After she helped me treat some a couple of years ago, she said, you know, 
I've gotten to where I really do notice privet down oh, yeah. in drains. It's, it's everywhere. I didn't realize there was so much of it. Uh, so, you know, until you're kind of attuned to it, um, you don't you don't really know how much is out there. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, I, I touched on it a few minutes ago. I think that's another thing with landowners. I, the reason, one reason I don't do a lot of work for private landowners is because they don't know what they've got. Yeah. And that's not a reflection on them. They just haven't been educated. A lot of times, I think our role is as much educating them mm. as it is actually doing the work. A lot of people will do the work if they know what to do. Number one, because it's cheaper for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but they may not know what a problem, you know, they may know they've got this big green bushy thing in the backyard that there's more of this year than there was two years ago they may not know what it is and they hire somebody to cut it down and they don't know that if you don't if you don't put herbicide on that stump it's going to be right back as big as it was when you cut it down in three or four years and when they cut it they've cut it right at the time it was seeding out and then loaded it into a truck and hauled it down the road and spread it from their backyard all the way to the landfill so um you know there's there's just not a lot of private work out there because people are not aware of how pervasive the problem is uh you know you want to control kudzu that's not just your problem that's probably your neighbor's problem and possibly that neighbor's problem um that bamboo you know all all of these things are kind of kind of got to look at a big picture sometimes that leads me i feel like i'm gonna ask it all my questions go ahead, hold on go ahead go ahead Cody. if you've noticed a trend and all we're we're throwing around the the street name for all these plants but the if you if you if you're real into this and you decide to get interested and look up some of these plants you'll notice a common trend of the proper common name for all these plants it either starts with Chinese or Japanese <laughs> or Eurasian. It's not that these plants are bad in their own home range where they're from, but they're not supposed to be here. It should be American at the first part of It should be American pests. They uh, should be native right. pests, not non-native They're, they're even displacing our native pests. And, you know, the, our uh, wildlife are not evolved to live cohesively with these non-native species the the problems are that that their their natural enemies are not here exactly. and it's not as simple as bringing their natural enemies over here to control it because that's then that tried. will displace uh that may fill a niche that's that's currently being filled by some other animal or plant so you know it's not all bringing something else in is frequently not the answer although sometimes it is we took us a little break there uh i know we've ran a tad long but it's on purpose it's on purpose because we wanted to get good information out about eli's background and the work he's involved in and he's got so much experience that sam and i have leaned on and eli's done a great job of taking lots of guys and and transforming them into maybe i won't I won't give you credit for transforming guys into great wildlife technicians. What I'll do is I'll give you credit for training a lot of guys and a lot of gals because how many how many temps and 
employees started under you that are now full-time wildlife career people do you know do you have a tally on that i can think of seven personally that i know at least i i don't um it's at least seven okay if you say so you can you can name them later but yeah yeah so you've 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 played a role in in a lot of people getting them getting them in there so i am under the impression that you've had to have had when i sam and i typed up questions for eli i figured i was going to ask eli something along the lines of what's the craziest thing you ever saw and eli during our break was informing us that there's nothing one no one thing that really stands out to him but a whole bunch of memories good and bad and funny and he was he was relaying a few of them to us that we're not going to record on the air but tell one or two that you do feel like recording on the air that you know there's so many entertaining stories like you said it's not really about the pay but it was about the job you got to do so sometimes it was a little more interesting than other times well the one the one that y'all for whatever reason seem to find the most amusing um we were we were kind of special uh, in the piedmont and the southern piedmont in the southern piedmont of north carolina there weren't but two crews it was us and there was sand hills um sand hills was a lot more tied to their immediate area than we were sand hills was about fifty thousand fifty or sixty thousand acres with very intensive management going on we were primarily attached to national forest property that had its own sort of its own rules and and uh, do's and don'ts and so we were a lot more flexible this one time uh, well I, I thought of another one I'll tell you briefly after this it's not all that amusing it was just an interesting anecdote we were called to respond to a deer that had gotten in an open pit mine um, a lot of you know a fair amount of gravel mining around and that's what this this was rock we weren't really sure what we were supposed to do we knew the deer was on on a ledge on the uh the mine face and we were going to we were directed to meet a a rescue squad team that was returning from training that our division chief in Raleigh was familiar with and and thought they might be able to do something so we would avoid negative uh, public relations and hopefully a good resolution for the deer in question <laughs> so we responded uh, we got up there we met the the region supervisor there who would come from Burlington for this um, and we're waiting on this team to get there and all the time we we were locating the deer with binoculars across this chasm probably I don't know probably a couple or three hundred yards across and we were having to watch the deer with binoculars uh, in the meantime the uh, mine operators had been in preparations to blow a face while we were there so we then had to go back up to the <laughs> back up to the surface to uh, let them let them do this detonation then came back down and 
by that time the the rescue guys had gotten there and were getting set up and I guess our job would have been to possibly transport the deer to a safe location or something I don't know I really we were we were all a little bit fuzzy on that so this guy starts rappelling down toward the deer that's on the cliff and no doubt a little bit apprehensive himself as to just exactly what how he was going to be extricated from that environment and before the uh before the would-be rescuer got there the deer tried to tried to flee and it was not a good outcome and he plummeted probably a hundred feet or more to the to the pit road underneath him and um, with our bizarre <laughs> senses of humor we we didn't exactly find it humorous but there was not a lot of grief about this deer that probably was in a bad place anyway and wouldn't have wouldn't have uh, survived much of anything he, he we've kind of generally felt that his genes were probably better out of the population than in if he was dumb enough to do something like that so um, once we were sure that the would-be rescuer was back up top and safe and wasn't going to fall off himself we loaded up and came home <laughs> it was a single guy rappelling down yeah with what, what uh, was his... we we don't really i, I, I don't know i mean i was a low i was a low guy on the totem pole so i figured that any of that information i would be told on a need-to-know basis and i didn't need to know <laughs> was he supposed to point. grab it we could only assume that at some point he was going to be able to you know uh, convinced the deer <laughs> that you know he was there to help um and and the deer would then relink, relent to being transported swiftly up the up cliff face and released to freedom to carry on his mm. dearly duties but it didn't work that way <laughs> another time we had a uh it was in the in the day of summer and uh, we were just, we were around the shop doing first one thing and another, too hot to do much of anything else, and got a phone call that was a little out of the ordinary. A person, I think it was a lady in Troy, called and said that there was a bat in her daughter's bedroom and um, wanted to know what to do about it. And, you know, we... We suggested, you know, closing the door, opening the window, making sure the screen was off, you know, and just waiting. And she said, well, you know, my daughter sleeps in there. How are we going to know the deer, that, the, that the bat left? And since we didn't have a whole lot else to do, me and a temp went up there. And after making absolutely sure that it was okay with the, with the homeowner for us to go rooting around in her daughter's closet, um, because we surmise that's where the bat probably was um, we went inside and started looking in nooks and crannies and I, I found the bat in the closet hanging on to some clothes and we um, 
I, we, I had on leather gloves and we took it outside and put it on a tree trunk and, you know, were hailed as, as the great heroes of the day. <laughs> um, I answered to the, I answered to the moniker Batman. <laughs> I am Batman. Um, that's pretty good. That was a good, that was anyway, a good Batman. Uh, Who's Batman? Who, which actor is Batman to you? Uh, always got to be Adam West. <laughs> yeah, I think you're gonna say Adam West. Anyway, uh, none of those were none of those are particularly amusing. But un- unless you're in the field and kind of know how futile a lot of those grand rescue efforts are, they frequently are only public relations um, efforts. But you know. Yeah, the things sometimes you, they work out. The things you see on television on uh, these reality animal shows or Nat Geo, it's, it's usually not as realistic as how it really goes down. But those are, those are two pretty good ones. The the bat story, so, and also a testament to more of the duties of a a technician. Just things that you can't you, you can't put them in a list. Because how do you list getting bats out of gals' closets on your job? Repelling to go repelling to go grapple a deer off of a cliff. Wrestle, wrestle yeah. an unwilling deer <laughs> to safety. Um, so, yeah, just an interesting career field for, for minimal pay but maximum experiences. Uh, and I think that's why we all do it. And in enclosure i'm gonna give you a couple of things but one question that's semi-serious but you've been a long-time supporter of three rivers land trust even when it was the land trust for central north carolina you were affiliated and a member before i was a part of it uh why why i guess is just the best way to put it what's what's the reason for you to be affiliated and be a, a member and a supporter and a part of it. Well, um, land trusts fill an important uh, role in land conservation um, for a, for a number of reasons. I mean, y'all make it a point to let folks know that you help preserve working working lands especially ag land that is incredibly important as North Carolina continues to try to outpace itself in population growth and and suburbanization Um, land trust what then was land trust for central North Carolina was instrumental in securing a number of tracts for the Wildlife Commission uh, during my career. Um, I mean, premier wildlife and and interesting habitat areas, they usually had some natural heritage significance of some kind. Um, And, you know, that's the the founding principles of it have not changed. They um, they're you know it's it's trite to say it but it's a good thing it's it fills a role that 
needs to be filled and cannot be filled or will not be filled by individuals. Um, it, it has to be a group working collectively and collaboratively to do that. Um, not especially over the last few years, it, it is not as much or it is no more a preservation organization than it is currently a land management organization. It's um, habitats and, and community plant, plant and animal communities are seldom static entities. They have to be manipulated to stay in a particular state. Uh, you guys know that. You, you've done the field work. I've helped you do some of the field work. A field doesn't stay a field unless you apply management to it. And um, a lot of these particular habitat types that y'all are trying to maintain, enhance, perpetuate, are important. They are communities that are in short supply uh, that are important both on a local and a landscape scale. So I'm, I'm uh, very pleased to have been a part of it um, and intend to be a part of it in some fashion for some time to come. Well, we certainly appreciate it and appreciate all your assistance, support, and sharing of expertise throughout you know now and hopefully for a long long time but with with that said is there anything that you wish we would have asked that we didn't ask or something you need to get off your chest to the world that you would like to get off no we we didn't talk about prescribed burning much well, um, yeah we didn't get into prescribed and that was burn. probably because of me being long-winded on herbicide stuff well, that and we've spent several episodes in the past just talking okay. burning. All right. Um, and I felt like, not that I don't want to have you here talking about burning, because I do, but you have a knowledge that we can't get anywhere else when it comes to herbicide treatments, and I can't go talk to a career. We, Sam and I can't, there's not just a whole bunch of career wildlife guys willing to come hang out with us for an hour and a half <laughs> you know i mean they're just not That's true well believe me when i say there aren't that many people that want me to come and hang out for an hour and a half with them <laughs> it's been fun let's uh i would uh I, one of one of my valued associates the other day said you know if you're going to do that podcast you need to give a shout out to all of your associates um he specifically said you need to talk you need to give a shout out to the a team big d in april and he said he said the the b team will be okay too uh, all of my all all of the folks that i work with are members of the a team of eli beverly and associates <laughs> i can assure you well i hope they'll all listen to this and know that we appreciate every member of ebna every member even yeah, here's something that we never brought up. We didn't talk about fire. You should talk about your uh, your UTV and <laughs> and uh, the the uh, how do I put it the the graffiti slash personalization of the AT of the UTV. 
the the atomic dog the um, atomic dog spilled d-a-w-g <laughs> this was somewhat at the behest of my wife who um i i had heard the song before it's from it's a it's a parliament funkadelic song <laughs> mr george clinton who i believe is from gastonia in fact but uh that may or may not be right, but anyway, there's there's a song called "Atomic Dog," and if you haven't if you haven't heard it, it's on YouTube, um, and it just is a rather catchy little ditty, and I thought described uh, described my utility my side by side utility vehicle rather well because it is a <laughs> it is a beast and um, has been money well spent. It gives it's a whole lot easier on the radio when you're on a fire to say bring the dog over here (laughs) than it is i need the utility vehicle that has much more charisma and uh is easier to easier on the tongue i feel like when you show up to a burn and your primary piece of gear has a biohazard (laughs) label slapped on it that's actually a radiation 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 symbol that's right when it's got a radiation symbol slapped on it, that means business. And I like that. I think that's the perfect name for this episode. Atomic Dog. The Atomic Dog. Bow, wow, wow. <laughs> Yippee-o, yippee <laughs> They won't know if we're referring to Eli or the, or the, or the gear. One and the, the same. One and the same. The Atomic Dog. Sam, what, uh, what am I leaving out, man? Mm, nothing. How you got any closers? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, how do folks... Do you want folks getting in touch with you if they're interested in talking to EB&A? If so, well, I give something out. For practical purposes, my my radius of uh, my my work radius is probably about fifty or seventy-five miles from Albemarle. Uh, just uh, it's not practical to go very much further than that for a job without having to charge an exorbitant amount and probably have an overnight stay or something if it's a big job so um i don't have a i don't have an internet uh, have a website um if you google my name i don't god knows i don't know what you'd come up with but you could i'm sure call contact uh, three rivers land Absolutely. trust and they can yeah. You can email they Sam They can or, uh, get in touch with me. And we, so, will, we will vet your clients for you. Much obliged. So if you want to get in touch with EB&A and discuss potential jobs or anything along the lines of all the expertise he has, feel free to reach out to Sam or I, and we will make that connection for you. Eli has been a great resource for me, for Sam, for the land trust, and he can be for you as well for the right price. <laughs> <laughs> as as I said on Ghostbusters, no job too too big, no fee too big. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we shall close her down. If you're like us, you're riding down the road listening to the podcast on your commute. When you get to where you're going, don't forget. Like us on Facebook. Check us out at our website, threeriverslandtrust.org. There you can find out about all the events we're putting on all the conservation work we're doing, how you can get involved, and how you can help. We'd love to meet like-minded individuals and get you involved in conservation. Till next time.